Well, thank you for that welcome. And uh, I will say this for my time and involvement within Encozy. Gerhardt's comments about it's a, a, a great community of 10,000 like-minded people to share your challenges and your experiences is exactly right. And that's the reason that I've been involved with it over the years. The people are fabulous at the chapter level, at the international level, so I hope you'll take advantage of it. Uh, Gerhard also mentioned at the IS, the International Symposium, the prevalence of model-based systems engineering papers. So model-based systems engineering is not new. It's something that Incozy and the community has been, I'm just going to go ahead and say, obsessed with for the last 10 years. Uh, last year, I would say that approximately 15% of the papers at the International Symposium had model-based systems engineering as a primary theme. Now, if you think about the breadth and depth of systems engineering, 15% of the papers on any one topic is huge. I'd say it was closer to 20% this year. Okay, The only thing that is in the same ballpark is systems of systems. So model-based systems engineering is very, very important. As I've traveled around the world, as I've talked to different organizations, it is clear that everybody is on the journey towards model-based systems engineering. If you look at the Rogers Innovation Cycle, we're clearly in the early majority phase. We're beyond early adopters. We're in early majority. We haven't quite tipped over to the late majority. If you talk about the Gartner Innovation Cycle, well, you can debate whether we are at the peak of inflated expectations or the trough of disillusionment. We're not at the plateau of, of increased productivity. But there's no doubt this journey is underway. So I've spoken about model-based systems engineering quite a bit over the years. And then I was stumped last year. I was giving a talk, uh, I believe it was 21st Century Systems Engineering, and somebody asked, so what's after MBSE? And I had to stop and reflect a great deal about that. And so I thought I would share those ideas with you. Now, to explain what comes after MBSE, at least in my opinion, we first have to understand what MBSE is and isn't. We have to understand how we can benefit from it today as individual organizations and as a community. And then and only then can we actually get past it. So. The first thing to understand about MBSC is, as good engineers, we know that you take a solution and then you go find a problem for it, right? <laughs> Hopefully not. Hopefully we are doing this model-based systems engineering for a reason. <laughs> Two years ago, Incozy published Systems Engineering Vision 2025. Not a vision for Incozy, but a vision for the profession. And in Vision 2025, this chart appeared. It was developed by a gentleman from Jet Propulsion Labs, JPL, and it had these five problems that are common, unfortunately, around the world. The sixth is a NASA-specific thing. Mission complexity is growing faster than our ability to manage it. Okay? System design, as much as we want it to be deliberate, emerges from pieces, resulting in systems that are brittle, difficult to test, complex, expensive to operate. Isn't that exactly what you want from your systems and you tell your customer, boy, I can give you something that's expensive and brittle? And No, we've got exactly the opposite of what we want. Knowledge and investment are lost at project lifecycle phase boundaries. From conceptual design to detailed design, detailed design to production, production to fielding, every step along the way, we know we lose money and we lose knowledge. It gets worse. Problem four, knowledge and investment are lost between projects. It says basically we don't learn effectively. Okay? And the fifth problem, technical and programmatic sides of projects are poorly coupled. Put in layman's terms, we do not work and play well with others. Systems engineers and program managers should be in it for the same thing, which is delivering against user needs. But systems engineers, it was, we focus on technical figures of merit, and program managers, as they focus on budget and schedule, we tend to forget our common ground and begin to conflict. The problem is, these five are not new. I could roll the clock back and put up a viewfoil, I wouldn't have PowerPoint, and have exactly the same thing in 1960. So what's changed? Why are we obsessed with model-based systems engineering? Do we just have an addiction? Well, I think the problem lies here. If you go back in time to understand where the environment was at the golden age of systems engineering when it was first founded, these are the terminology, these are the descriptors that I would use. Long-lived systems, standalone systems, electromechanical systems, stable environments. Okay, All these describe the systems that we were building. 
Does that describe the systems that you're building today? I don't think so. The systems today, they are cyber-physical. Software is a huge part of it. Varied lifespan, varied complexity, varied domain, model-centric. But the key word here is change. What is driving the change in our systems engineering approach is change itself, specifically the acceleration of the technology insertion cycle, the technology adoption cycle. When I go home and I have a specific experience on my Samsung or my Apple iPhone, and then I walk into work and I deal with a 1980s era user experience, what do I want? I want change. When I, uh, when I see new technologies that I can inject into my system, what do I want? I want to inject them. My environment is also changing. So user needs are changing, technologies are available are changing. The environment that we operate in, if you're an uh, aerospace and defense, your competitors. If you're a commercial company, your competitors. All those environments are changing. And so classical, document-centric systems engineering cannot keep up. That's the why behind making the change. Okay, so if we're there, let's understand what MBSC is and isn't. By the way, at any point, inject questions, make comments. If not, I'm prone to ask you questions, and you probably don't want that. So this is a slide. It actually probably dates back to about 2007. This is the version I found in 2010. It is a classic technology transformation slide in PowerPoint. You take some vague statement about the current state, put it on the left. You put some vague statement about the future state, put it on the right. Put an arrow and put some vague statements in the middle about the benefits. And that's supposed to communicate. Now, I mock this. It's actually been a very effective slide, but it's actually done a lot of damage, too. You cannot communicate the richness of a transformation in one PowerPoint slide. That's not the fault of the slide. It's not the fault of the medium. It's our fault in the way we approach this. And so this story, while it has told good statements about moving from a traditional approach to a future approach, unfortunately has created a lot of myths and misconceptions along the way. First thing that we have to do is get rid of those. The most dangerous myth, and it's funny because every time I say this, people nod, they knowingly nod, but yet I've watched us act in different ways over the last 10 years. The most dangerous myth is that models are somehow new. Because if I'm going to adopt this new thing called model-based systems engineering, well, clearly that means the models weren't there before. They were there before. The question is, where were they? Anybody know where you would find the models back in the days of... Uh, the Blackbird or, or Apollo or any classic system? Prototypes. Prototypes. And then you started to say something else. In your, in your head. That's the answer. It was in the head of the chief systems engineer. That is the, where the model was. And by the way, that's where the model still is. Now, the systems are getting too complex to keep it there. But if systems engineering is about bringing multiple perspectives together to understand a problem and develop a solution, is having that model in somebody's head an effective place? Not until we develop some technology that I'm not aware of. Okay, Google may be working on it, I don't know. So the models have always been there. They've been trapped in the engineer's mind. Models are as old as engineering. They are the way we work. They are the way we think. They are the way we analyze. Why have we used documents? Why have we used specifications? Because it is the best medium that we had to communicate that model. And it worked to a very, very broad audience. But it is a very low fidelity mechanism. So myth one on MBSC, models aren't new. They've been there all the time. If we can get rid of that one notion that they're new, we can greatly accelerate this transformation. Because when you say something is new, you create fear and uncertainty and doubt about the transformation. Second myth, documents aren't going away. Don't get rid of your copy of Microsoft Word anytime soon. Documents are a great way to communicate with a broad range of people. What do systems engineers do? We communicate with a broad range of people. It's just low fidelity communications. Okay? Models are not new. Documents are not going away. So a stack of diagrams is a model, right? So saith SysML. No, and that's not a disparaging comment about SysML. SysML is a tool. It's a representation set. What we do with it is not the strength or weakness of SysML. It's the strength or weakness of us. 
I would not put top, front, and side views of a physical item on here and you say that's a model. You'll understand those are projections of, of a physical thing. They are only views of it. A stack of diagrams is a stack of diagrams. It's useful, it's not a model. Modeling and simulation, it's been around for a long time. That's great, that's not MBSC either. That is models in systems engineering, not model-based systems engineering. What's the difference? Model-based systems engineering is all about integration, connectivity, and most important, coherence. Think about those three projections, top, front, and side. They are coherent because there's a detailed CAD model underneath them. You can't change one face of it and not have the others change as well. So diagrams may be generated by a model. They may represent an underlying model, but they're not a model itself. Integration, connectivity, coherence. So why this diagram obsession that we have? Well, if I talk about CAD, it's pretty easy to understand what the model is. If we get rid of everything else and we just think geometry, the model in CAD is points and vectors. Okay? What is the model in systems engineering? We are broad over concerns, and we think through the entire life cycle. We can't represent that model cleanly. It is this vague notion that exists in our head so we use diagrams and viewpoints as ways to construct that model, interact with that model, analyze that model, communicate that model. But these are viewpoints of projections of the underlying model. They're not the model itself. And by the way, those specs and tables and whatnot that we always used, they're the same thing. Okay? They were the best representation we had. So if you want to get rid of the myths and misconceptions, and if you take any one thing away from here to help you on your journey to MBSC, to help the industry and the profession on its journey, get rid of these myths and misconceptions. Models are not new. This is all about evolution. If we view this as an evolutionary step to higher fidelity representations, to more granular knowledge that we can analyze and learn, then we understand what the evolution is. Views are important because it's hard to get our mind around what this real model is, and it's about integration, connectivity, and coherence. Suja. So, um, one of the things is actually that everyone has a different idea of what a model is. Yes. You can also any engineer here, and you will have different ideas of what a model is. Yes. And I think it also causes a lot of... Um, Debate. I don't want to use the word conflict <laughs> among uh, even systems engineers with other engineers when we when we talk about model-based systems engineering because we say we've been doing this all the time. What is so special about this? Yes. Yes. No, you're you're exactly right. You're exactly right. I did that for a particular reason. If you sit in the Incosi model-based systems engineering workshop you will note that they carefully never define model, which truly annoys me. But they have avoided that for a lot of time. If you go pull up the definitions of model, is a spec a model? Yes, it is. Is a diagram a model? Yes, it is. Is a physical thing a model? Yes, it is. Any simplification is a model. The thing is, to help us through this evolution, we do need to be more precise. Because anything's a model, then makes everything a model, which means we've always been doing model-based systems engineering. That doesn't help. So now let me help to answer your question a little bit. Thank you for setting the stage. Let's clarify a little bit about models, because there are multiple models in systems engineering, and I got myself in trouble with this. As long as I've been doing systems engineering, what I consider to be MBSE is the way I was taught to do it. And that goes back 24 years. Okay, which certainly predates model-based systems engineering. We've been doing this for a long time. We just haven't been using the language. But it's now, I think, three years ago that I got myself in trouble because I was invited to an event that was a one-day workshop on model-based systems engineering. And they asked me to be a keynote, and I was, and they asked me to speak right after lunch, the slot of death. And so I took that, and I actually appreciated that because okay, I know a thing or two about model-based systems engineering, at least according to me. And I had the opportunity to hear the early morning presenters and tie back into the conference theme, because I really wanted to tie into their concepts. And the first guy stepped up, 
and he gave a fascinating pitch. Just really great engineering work. Didn't have a clue as to what it had to do with model-based systems engineering at all, but it was fascinating. High fidelity physics and this and that and the other. So I do what you do in the audience at that point. I was polite. I sat out there and I nodded. Okay, good, good. I kept nodding all morning. I came back after lunch. I start giving a pitch, a pitch that Nkosi would recognize very, very well. And I look out at the audience and what do I see? A lot of heads nodding. We were using exactly the same language because we had never defined our terms and we were talking right past each other. So how do you resolve that? You go down to the bar afterwards and you have a drink. And you start talking. And for the first time I realized we were talking about two legitimate classes of systems models, both at the system level, but completely different things. We were talking about the architectural model, the descriptive models, the things that encapsulate everything from definition of need through requirement, behavior, architecture, test, this descriptive stuff that Incozy deals with. This is where you have a chance, your one chance only in the program to deal with complexity. This is where you innovate. This is where you do creative thinking. This is where you do fresh design engineering. Okay, this is what Incozy likes to deal with. This is where you use SysML to represent things. What they were talking about were the analytic models, valid at the system level. They were talking about system level analytics the real physics or other considerations that drive performance. They are what drives rigor and refinement and advancement at the engineering level. This is what moves us beyond systems thinking to real systems engineering. But neither of us put a descriptor on the front. The key is they're actually related. Okay, I am a big believer that there is one and only one architectural model for a system. Requirements do not exist separate from behavior, separate from architecture, separate from anything else. Requirements are a problem state representation of your system. There are a large number of analytic models. It depends upon what type of problem you're solving. The key is they hang off of the, archi the physical architecture most often, and the physical architecture gives them their coherence. So they're interconnected. Now, how much you do of one or the other depends upon if you're doing fresh, innovative design or if you're doing product line engineering or you're doing product family engineering. You adjust how much of each you do, but there's one descriptive architecture model and multiple analytic models. Okay? Now, let's peel this back a little further. I think we're very comfortable as engineers with the analytic models. We grew up with those in whatever discipline we, we started. So let's discard those for a second. Let's wipe this to the side. And let's talk about what a very simple model would look like for Incozy. Oh, sorry, for systems engineering. If you go pull up the Incozy systems engineering, engineering handbook and you look at it, well, what are you going to have? You're going to have requirements, which are the basis of behavior, which are then mapped onto architecture. Now, you may use different terms for the relationships, but we're going to recognize requirements and activities in architecture. And since this is PowerPoint engineering, I'm allowed to ignore anything that does not fit on the chart. Okay? In reality, there's test and evaluation on the other side. There's stuff that precedes requirements on this side. But this is the simplest possible model. Okay. But that's not the only way systems engineers think. We tend to think in aggregation and decomposition as well, right? Okay, that's good, because we can break these concepts down. We can have descendant requirements, derived requirements, child requirements. We can break our behavior down into sub-activities and functions, and our architecture absolutely breaks out in a parts list, and we relate at the lower level as well. Okay, that is the simplest possible, when I talk about architecture model, that you could have. Okay, and it becomes explicit, and we define the terms, and we define the relationships, but that's not very useful. That is too simplistic for the systems that we build. This is a meta model for systems engineering. I'm not arguing that it's the only one. This is the one that we use. It's based upon application and derivation dating back to 1968 and continued use on any number of systems that long precedes Vitek. Okay? But you see the concepts that you're used to in the relationships, requirements, functions, items being passed, components, interfaces between them, states, transitions. Over on this side, you see operational architecture, CONOPS concepts that then map in. Would you try to engineer your system by filling out all this data? Not at all. But this is 
a subset, by the way. This isn't the full meta model. This is a subset of the model that exists in the mind of the systems engineer. This is a subset of the architectural model, which is why we deal with views. Because you cannot conceptualize and think about that meta model that way. You tend to look at viewpoints of it, any number of viewpoints that help you understand. And so we will take multiple viewpoints. SysML is multiple viewpoints. Activity diagrams, sequence diagrams, interface block diagrams, block definition diagrams, requirements diagrams. All those are just different viewpoints, different perspectives on the same integrated underlying model if you do it right. Okay. Doing okay, Suja? Okay, just checking. You were the one who triggered that. I quickly injected all those slides just for you. You're welcome. All right. So... Hopefully we've gotten rid of some myths. Hopefully we've clarified what I would describe as an architectural model. Let's get rid of some roadblocks. Sorry, go ahead, would please. You, would you just comment on MATLAB or Simulink? Is that what you would call an analytical model? Yes, yes. MATLAB and Simulink are excellent examples of analytical models. So are any number of specialty tools that represent specific uh, subject matter experts and expertise required to deliver your system of interest. Perfect. All right. So third, let's get rid of the roadblocks because, boy, I have heard some great reasons that we cannot adopt MBSC. So MBSC requires SysML or UML or UPDM or UAF, fill in whatever you want in the blank. So we can't go to, Sys we can't go to MBSC because everybody in our organization has to learn such and such notation or language. No. If you recognize that MBSC is about changing the fidelity of communication, then pick the notation that serves your problem in your community. It doesn't have to be any of these. It doesn't have to be anything in particular. Just work on the fidelity of communication. We're already doing SysML, so we're doing MBSC. Well, maybe you are, maybe you're not. If you are managing the coherence and connectivity between those representations, you're doing great MBSC, keep doing it. If you're drawing diagrams, you're doing what's called diagram-based systems engineering, which is exceptionally dangerous because it appears to be the same thing as MBSC, but it has no coherence, and you have inconsistencies in those representations, and you know what will happen? That's what blows up rockets on launch pads. Okay? We tend not to like to do that. We're already doing modeling and simulation. Great, keep doing it. That's models in systems engineering. That's not model-based systems engineering. This is, again, analytics. Okay, this is very critical. We have to implement architecture and analytic to get any benefit. No, you don't. You need to tailor your approach and exactly what you're doing for the problem that you're doing. If you're doing new, fresh, top-down engineering, you're going to do more architectural, descriptive. If you've got an existing, you've got a 2017 Ford Mustang and you're doing the 28 variant, you're doing more analytic. Okay, adjust based upon what you're doing. It's too complex. Well, if you assume that you have to do SysML or UML or UPDM, and you assume that you have to do architecture and analytic, you're right, it is too complex. If instead you go back to the basics and say, this is about communicating in a higher fidelity way the things of interest for my problem, it's actually pretty simple. We must model everything, and it's not possible to model everything. The second part of this statement is exactly right, and it's where a lot of people get in trouble. The first part of the statement is exactly wrong. You must have a coherent top-level solution architecture. That is absolutely required. But then you go into depth based upon where there are changes, where there are risks, where there are knowns and un unknowns. And guess what that's called? It's called engineering judgment. You only model in those spaces where it yields insight. You cannot have a full in-depth model of everything. It's not possible. Implementing MBSC is one-size-fits-all. It tailors to the problem and the process at hand. What are you trying to get? It's a technical problem. All I need is a tool. It is not a technical problem. It is a social change problem. It is about how we represent knowledge. Are there technology issues here that we have to deal with? Yes, there are. But it's not a technical problem. We need to avoid tool lock. This is a myth that tool vendors perpetuate to keep you from doing what they don't want you to do, or more explicitly, to lock you into what they want you to do. You don't worry about tool lock when you talk about CATIA or some of the 
you know, mechanical engineering models? Why are you worried about it on systems engineering? And last, my favorite, MBSC is the answer. Does it all. MBSC is an approach. It's a tool to add to our toolkit. It's nothing more, nothing less. It's evolutionary. So to come back, what is MBSC? It's about making the models explicit. It's about communication and analysis, and I do mean it in that order, because systems engineering is first about aligning groups, and that's a communication concept. Then we align the analysis. It is design and specification. It ensures consistent specifications when done well. If you give me a stack of documents that are written by hand, I can guarantee they're inconsistent. If you do it by good model-based systems engineering with a good environment, then you can use computer techniques to detect the inconsistencies. Computer's not going to solve it, but you can. You provide the explicit system model to subsequent engineering teams. You're communicating with them in a high fidelity way. It is evolution, not revolution. Does not mean that it cannot deliver transformative results. It can, but it is an evolutionary change. Questions. Are we okay on what MBSC isn't, and more importantly, what it is? Yes, sir. Um, am I wrong in thinking that there's some subjectivity in model-based system engineering? Is there some sort of clash with the objectivity or object-oriented thinking? So is there a clash with object-oriented thinking? Absolutely not. Okay? Um, because object-oriented thinking is a way of conceptualizing and representing your model. Model-based systems engineering then just puts that in high-fidelity representations. So you can take structured notation, sorry, structured notation, structured thinking, object-oriented notations, object-oriented thinking, not incompatible at all. Likewise, MBSC and Agile aren't incompatible. They're quite compatible. This is just a knowledge representation technique. Okay, good question. There's, yes, sir. I'm using a tool like um, DOORS or CORE. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> to capture my requirements, trace them to design, trace them to test. Am I doing model-based engineering? Not necessarily. Okay. If you're using if you're using doors, then doors is only a requirements management and tracing tool. You may still be doing model-based systems engineering in your head, but your tool is not doing it. That's okay. That just means it's on you to guarantee consistency. If you're using something like Core, Core has an underlying meta model that connects the architectural domains. You can still misuse it. It's just like just because you're using SysML, it doesn't mean that you're doing MBSC. Core won't allow you to be inconsistent, but you can also use Core like it's a drawing package or a requirements tool. So it has a lot to do with your thinking process. And then is your, if you're dealing with I, I hesitate to use this, but I have to. If you're dealing with a simple enough problem at the system level, you can actually do model-based systems engineering without a tool. I wouldn't, but you can. When you get to really complex problems, you better have a really powerful tool because the tools, all the tools do is capture your knowledge, they do knowledge management, and hopefully they do good bookkeeping for you. Okay? So it's the, you can use or misuse any tool. Okay, it's the thought process that's key. All right, so we've got this great solution. So it's gone back and it's solved our problem, right? No. If we look at these five challenges that have existed since the 1960s, we've really only addressed mission complexity because we've got a much better knowledge capture approach and we've got uh, more coherence by definition. We've touched a little bit on system design. We've touched a little bit on knowledge investment at project boundaries. Haven't touched four and five at all. So how can we use MBSC to deliver more benefit about these? These are things that you can do right now today in your organization. And again, why are we doing it? Because to get beyond MBSC, well, you first have to go through MBSC, and you better get something good out of the journey. Other than that, it's not worth taking. What I have down the right side there is a little uh, legend so that we can indicate which dimensions of the problem does this technique help me with. 
first thing that you can do with MBSE, and by the way, you can do all of these things with document-centric systems engineering. You can just do it better with model-based because you've got a higher fidelity representation for better communication, better analytics, and better knowledge management. The first thing that you can do is you can align and respond via reference architectures. Our organizations, by definition, are product line organizations. I doubt Philips Healthcare is about to build the next great jet fighter. Okay? And likewise, I doubt Airbus is about to go build an MRI machine. It's not that they're not smart enough. That's just not their business line. So our businesses, by definition, are product line or at least product family. What we have here is we have worked with a U.S. aerospace uh, company that you would know very well that does a lot of UAVs. They do fixed wing, they do rotary, they do subsea, they do sensing platforms, and they do delivery platforms, although you do not wish to be on the receiving end of what they're delivering. Okay? What this organization did is they started using model-based systems engineering for each individual member of the product family. And after two or three versions of this, two or three iterations, they realized, hold on, there's actually a common reference architecture that we have that's in our systems, that's in our models, it's in our heads, but we haven't represented it. So they took the time to abstract out the reference model. Now that gave them four key benefits. First off, it aligned the team around a common language. By the way, you already have a common language in your organization. This just makes it explicit. So you can't talk past one another anymore. It got past the blank sheet of paper problem. The next time a UAV problem showed up on their doorstep, guess what? They got a quick start on it, and they got a quick start in the right direction. It brought commonality to the product family. Where they chose to be deliberately different, they could, but they weren't arbitrarily different. A lot of efficiency in a given project and in the family. And the fourth one is it enables learning. The way it does that is when they took the reference architecture and instantiated it for a new program, at the end of the program, they compared the new product architecture with the reference, and if they wanted to build a learning back in, they could easily do it. Okay. Now, there's a danger in doing this. You need a curmudgeon engineer who's going to keep you out of, well, we did it that way before. So you need somebody who's willing to challenge the old system. But this is, because of the high fidelity representation, it's immediate value in those four dimensions. Can you do that with a document? Yes, but your comprehension level of a document is much lower than a high fidelity model. I mentioned that we're at least product family. Most of us are product line. So let's say that we're engineering the 2018 Ford Mustang, and it's just going to be a light variant of the 2017. What are we doing? We're going to introduce a couple new requirements that are going to give us market advantage. Maybe I'm going to stop a little faster. More likely, I'm going to give you a higher informatics pack package so it's a more enjoyable ride. Uh, now I'm going to do driver assistance. How can I do that? Well, if I've got a good high-fidelity model-based representation, I can look at the impact of each one of those changes, and I can understand how that is going to impact my existing system, and I can watch for emergent properties that I don't want, and I can do it quicker. This, again, a high-fidelity representation of your current system allows you to evolve your system better in a more deliberate way. And we are fundamentally product line organizations, whether we recognize it or not. What's the difference between a product family and a product line organization? In general, it's the amount of time between iterations. Boeing is a product line organization. However, there is so much time between their generation of aircraft that they can't really go back to just do an incremental change of the previous one. They can go back to a reference architecture, but they can't just change the... 777 and make it 787. If you're Apple and you're releasing a new phone every 6 to 12 months, well, then you absolutely go back until you wish to completely break your reference architecture and build something new. So again, higher fidelity representations, better communication, better knowledge management, better analytics. 
we talked about the 2016 International Symposium a little bit. Let me go back to the 2015 International Symposium. By the way, if you haven't done it, there is an Encozy YouTube channel that has the keynotes from 2016, 2015, 2014, and I believe 2013. They're freely available. Go listen to them. They're very enjoyable. To me, the highlight of 2015 was Jan Bosch, who is a software guy, who was talking about software concepts in the systems domain and basically challenging us to say, look, you guys have to change your thinking. Traditionally, because you were dealing with long-lived systems, you believed that you were designing built to last. Guys, it's different today. It's all about change. You need to design built to evolve. So he was talking about agile thinking, agile techniques, recognizing that once you bend metal, it's a little different than when you use software. But again, model-based techniques allow us to be far more agile because we can be comfortable in introducing change, doing impact analysis, watching for emergent behaviors that we don't want. If you have to do a very manual, intensive, mental bookkeeping approach to systems engineering, you're not going to embrace change because change represents risk. Now, change still represents risk, but now you've got a mitigation approach to see how is it going to potentially impact you. So if you want to accelerate your adoption of new requirements and new technologies, this will let you do it. What we really have to get past as systems engineers is this concept that we get to build down to the atomic level. Okay? We know that this is true. We emotionally know that it's true, but our techniques are still built around it. We have to get to the concept of so-called composability. It's not about interfaces. It's about dynamic interactions. It's not about features. It's about capabilities. Now, I will tell you that a lot of people, myself included, use the term composability at the system level, and none of us know what we're talking about. And the reason is, if you do composability the way you think at the system level, it's called building a system without systems engineering and trying to fix during integration and test. That's not what we mean. You can't just put the pieces together. So we actually have to figure out the science of composability at the system level. It certainly starts with composability of models, but that's not the only place. Systems of systems gives us some insight because what happens in systems of systems? You're taking existing pieces and you're putting them together to deliver new capabilities. Okay. Represent your knowledge in a better way, higher fidelity way, composability of models. This all starts us on the journey. And this one is a very specific aspect of the reference architectures. I said if you are doing product uh, family engineering, you already have a language. The key is to make that language explicit. Well, when you're using document-centric techniques, when you're writing in Microsoft Word, Microsoft Word doesn't care how you use a word. You can use it any way you want. When you put that in a good model language, meaning matters. It's going to force you to be explicit about how you use language in your organization on a particular class of problem. It's called a domain-specific language or an ontology. But it means that when your systems engineer talks to your software engineer or your systems engineer talks to your mechanical engineer or your reliability engineer or your user, they communicate effectively because they've been very crisp on their definitions. Now note, this does not say that everybody speaks one and only one language. That's not going to happen. Each specialty has their own language that they've developed over years for very specific reasons. It helps with their specific concerns. But that one architectural model, that descriptive model, is the one model to coordinate them all. We, we then build translators between our specific language and that architectural model. That's the systems engineering diagram. Put the systems engineer in the middle of that. What is the systems engineer all about? He or she is the connective technical tissue of the project. They are the ones who serve as the elicitation function and the connection function and the communication function across all those specialties that are necessary. All we're saying here is, hey, that's what the model is doing now, and we're going to be precise. And because we're going to be precise, we are going to reduce miscommunications. We're not going to get rid of them, but we're going to be much better about it.
So if you will use model-based as a driver to make your domain-specific language in your organization crisp, that alone is a benefit, even if you don't put it in a tool. Now, I've told you all great things that you can do today with model-based systems engineering, but let, when, let me warn you about a couple classic errors that I have seen. And I've seen them time and time again when organizations go to deploy MBSE. So there's a lot of good, but there are a lot of traps for too. First thing, start too big. Systems engineers, engineers in general, I believe are optimists. Most people don't believe that because we use safety factors and risk factors and therefore they believe we're pessimists. I don't think that's true at all. I think engineers are optimists because we see a better tomorrow. We're just trying to get us there. Now, so what happens when an optimist gets an idea of what this technology can do? They get all excited. They run into their VP's office, and they tell her all the great things that it's going to do for them. She says, great, what do you need? And they throw out a huge number and talk about all the things that has to be changed, at which point they're shown the door, hopefully politely, and they should be shown the door. We overpromise and underdeliver, but more importantly, we try to take on too much change at one time because we see the potential, but if you take on too much change in an organization, organizations are mostly designed to resist change. Okay? Do too much and you're going to get shut down. So don't start too big. But people also start too small. You know what? I'll just do this little pilot. It's the side project over here. It won't disrupt anybody. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. You just solved a toy problem, but that, how does that help me with SKA? Okay, I can't translate that to SKA. Or you don't get top cover because you are so small and insignificant, they're not investing. So guess what? When you run into a little hiccup, hey, not mine, I don't care. So you've got the Goldilocks problem. You can't be too hard and you can't be too soft. You've got to pick a problem that's just right. Keeping up with the Joneses. Hey, that approach worked over there. What I should do is adopt it. There are two problems with that. First off, I spent two years as the Nkosi president. I can tell you that what people say in a public forum at a conference or write in a paper and what happened behind the scenes are two radically different stories. Okay? How many of you care to air everything that happens on your project, the warts and all? Doesn't happen. So you get the sterilized, clean, joyous journey. Okay? It's not true. The other thing is, if you're going to do model-based systems engineering right, it has to start with a need. It has to start with a business need. Their business need is likely different than yours. So even if the story that they told was exactly true and you emulate it 100%, <clears throat> if they were after time to market and you're after resilience and innovation, uh-uh. Those are two different implementations. So you cannot keep up with the Joneses. Chasing standards. All I need is a little SysML, UML, UAF, uh, DODAF, MODAF, TF, VF, IDAF. You know what? I can keep going on on standards. It was like a little XML, XMI, OSLC. There are so many standards out there that they're non-standard. Okay? You cannot comply with them all. You pick the standards that serve you. Don't serve the standards. It's a technology problem. No, it's process. It's culture. Settling for diagram-based SE, it is an easy trap. Hopefully I've given you the clue. That's actually not a tool-based thing. You have to be aware of who's managing coherence. If your tool's doing it, great. If not, it's your job. Just make sure you're doing it. And focusing on the MB and forgetting the SC. We love our models. I do not know an engineer in the world who wakes up on Monday morning and goes, hey, great news. I get to sit down and write spec all day, okay? Microsoft Word is not our friend. But I know a lot of engineers who wake up and go, it's a great day to be alive, I get a model today. And we will model and model and model, and we will forget that we're actually supposed to be serving a purpose. It's about the SE. MB is just part of the journey, okay? So... Those are things that you can do, good, and a couple traps in your organization today. You don't need anybody else. But to get beyond MBSE, 
this profession, this industry needs to go on a journey together. Because if SKA develops the best processes and the best approaches of anybody, but your engineers do it different than anybody else in the world, where are you going to find new talent, and how are you going to work through the entire supply chain? You're not. We need to move the industry forward if we're going to do anything. So there are certain things that require the greater community. The first thing, and this is from Troy Peterson, is there is an Incozy objective. One of our six strategic objectives is about enabling this transformation. We recognize it's going to take a community. It takes more than systems engineers. It takes people who are doing similar journeys in BIM or product lifecycle management or, or any number of other things. And it's going to take all of us to make this change. And ultimately, what we're after is enabling model-based engineering, not model-based systems engineering. That's the disruptive piece. So it's going to take a community. The community is trying to form, and Incozy believes that it can be the hub of that community, but not the only voice of that community. It's going to take a language. Now, hold on. I already said it's going to take a language. Yes. But what I said is the first thing that you can do is develop a domain-specific language that solves your product problem in your organization. This is different. Okay? This is the universal Rosetta Stone. So when we have users talking to electrical engineers, talking with mechanical engineers, talking with software engineers, talking with managers, talking with stakeholders, talking with systems engineers, we all understand at least through a common translator, the Rosetta Stone. It unifies that group. And if we're talking one type of system or another, it works. Okay? And by the way, if we want to learn across projects, then we must have a common language. We cannot, or at least we must have translators to a common standard. Otherwise, we cannot learn across industry. We can learn as organizations. If aerospace and defense uses different language than energy, different than medical, different than transportation, different from product, and we have no translation function, we cannot exchange experiences, not effectively. And last and potentially most dangerous to me is this profession, which is all about holism and seeing the big picture, is actually fragmented. There are those who focus only on technical processes. Systems engineering is all about process. Or it's all about management. Or, you know, soft systems, that's something different. There are those who believe that model-based systems engineering is different and disjoint than systems engineering. Or that systems leadership or systems thinking, they're not. They're unified through a common core concept. This Rosetta Stone is required for model-based systems engineering at a community level so that we can communicate across people, across education, across supply chains, etc. It requires the dreaded O-word, ontology which basically means we define our terms, we define our relationships, we define our context. The thing is, when we get it, it's not the ontology for model-based systems engineering. It's the ontology for systems engineering. We cannot become a discipline until we have an ontology. We cannot become a science until we have an ontology. Now, I don't honestly care about being a discipline or a science, but I do believe that without that, we are going to be waving our hands at one another. This is not quick to come. It only comes about when we develop our domain-specific languages and learn, but we cannot stop at our project boundaries. We have to go beyond. Which gets into learning. I've talked a lot about communication, but early on I said it's also about representing knowledge in smaller nuggets. Why do you want to do that? You want to do that for learning. And if you will put information in the right mapping in small enough nuggets, you can do it. Okay? And that's all about heuristics and wizards. We all remember Clippit. Okay? Clippit would knock on your screen in the 1990s and say, Hey, Dave, looks like you're trying to write a requirement specification. Can I help? My Clippit didn't say this. It said, Hey, it looks like you're trying to write a memo. It looks like you're trying to do something else. Can I help? But it could have said this because all Clipit was doing was trying to give you a template that elicited information. It was all about knowledge capture in big chunk. I don't care about Clipit. By the way, those who think Clipit is gone, you're wrong. Spawn of Clipit is coming back. <laughs> it is. This is a Microsoft thing that is coming. So he's coming back or she's coming back. I don't know what it is. I don't care about Clip It. You can't make Clip It smart enough for me. What I care about is Einstein. 
Hey Dave, it looks like you need five nines of reliability. Would you like me to help? Hey Dave, that's a terrible allocation. What are you, a moron? Would you like me to help? If I'm a software guy, I write the you're a moron. But hey, I do want him to help. We can bring automated techniques to detect this, to detect heuristics, if we will reduce our knowledge in a format that we can apply machine learning and big data to. I cannot learn from a spec because a spec is not granular enough. But if I will break the knowledge in a spec down and I learn across multiple projects encoded in an ontology, I can learn. What do we call this today? We call this the senior systems engineer who's been around the block a time or two and they can just sense that's wrong. Okay, great. Let's encode what that's wrong means. Academia can help us but only if we package our knowledge the right way. Now, academia also likes to tell me that I'm short-sighted, and I'm okay with that because I'm about practical things today. Academia likes to tell me, hey, Dave, it doesn't stop with heuristics and wizards. What we really need is the grand unifying theory of systems engineering. I like that. I'm not going to live to see that, but I do like that. What we can do now is... Systems engineering is underpinned by all of these existing theories that we don't think about. Probability theory, game theory, decision theory, ontology, complexity theory, network science. When was the last time in a systems engineering dialogue that you broke out an explicit theory based underneath it for the discussion? You may have done it, but it's not likely. We can connect all of these theories right now without inventing a new theory and underpin this gut-level systems engineering with far more science. Okay. It's possible. Again, it has to do with the way we represent knowledge and the way we map these concepts into an ontology. Interesting change in, in systems engineering. Three years ago, academia was pursuing the grand unifying theory of systems engineering and systems thinking. They have actually stopped that and said, the bigger gain we can get is by connecting these theories. These already exist. Leverage them. Okay. You've stayed with me this long. I guess that means you want the punchline. So I've told you what it is and what it isn't. I've told you how MBSC can benefit you today. I've told you what we can do as, a, uh, as really a community. So now let's gaze into my crystal ball. Okay. Now, it's my crystal ball, so it may be right, it may be wrong, I don't know. But what lies beyond model-based systems engineering? When I seriously tried to sit down and think about this, and I got beyond thinking about where are we in the journey and what can we get today, I then thought to other disciplines who have made a similar journey. What can we learn from them? And so the two best ones to me are mechanical engineering, and chip design. We could put others up here, but these are two good pictures. So, anybody know what came after model-based mechanical engineering? Anybody know what came after model-based chip design? Mechanical engineering and chip design. We got to a point where we stopped obsessing about the technique and we got back to the focus at hand. We got beyond the point where 20% of the papers at an Incozy conference were featuring the technique and we got back to doing good systems engineering. It turns out model-based is part of our journey. I gave you the clue when I said it's evolutionary. It is very key to make it through here because it is evolutionary but it is transformative but only if we remember it's about the SC. You do mechanical engineering with model-based techniques. That's just the way we do it from the time we're taught through the time we practice in industry. You cannot design a modern chip by hand. It's not possible. We just don't talk about the technique anymore. So that's a pretty dull punchline. But there's something a little bit different. Systems engineers are always different. We like to think of ourselves as special. The difference between us and everybody else is we are special. So, what's special about us? You can say it's because we are late to the party. You can say it's because we are the connective tissue. You can say that it's because we've got the most complex task. It doesn't matter. We are the ones who enable model-based engineering. 
We're already doing model-based mechanical engineering. We're really doing model-based software if we do it right. We're doing model-based chip design. But those systems engineers, us systems engineers sitting at the very front end, at that fuzzy front end, we've been doing things in a low-fidelity way. If we can change to do high-fidelity model-based representations in a way that allows us to connect to the other specialties necessary to deliver systems, then we can enable model-based engineering. Now, there are two visions here. One of them is through additive technology and direct-to-manufacturing that someday I can press a button and print a joint strike fighter. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. I personally wouldn't want to do it because it probably won't work, but hey, that's a Joint Strike Fighter comment, nothing else. Um, what you absolutely can do is connect the analytics, and that's what we need. We need to be able to say, if I change this requirement, how is that going to change the operating life cycle? Am I going to move outside the performance boundary that I've set for this? If I change this technology down here, what ripple impact will I have? If we only accelerate and eliminate translation errors in the engineering cycle, boy, what a gain. Time to market, quality, cost, we win it all. The world does not care about MBSC. The world does not care about SC. The world does care about this because this gets better quality products to market faster and cheaper. That's the disruptive technology. If we do MBSC the right way, we enable it. We enable this engineering system. If we do MBSC the wrong way, we make our job easier, but we don't help the enterprise. Okay? The key is to do it the right way. After model base fades away, and it will fade away, and it's not that long before it's going to fade away, what are we left with? We've got a better toolbox for communication and analysis. We've got more scalability. We've got better tailorability. We've got Reference architectures, we've got heuristics, okay? Composability, if we do it right. Insight into efficient frontiers so that we're not just wandering around the design space. We've got toolbox of theories supporting SE that are connected. Hopefully, we have higher value for the time that we spend. Most importantly, we have progress. We have progress for systems engineering, and we have progress for our enterprises. The key in all of this is to remember we are on a journey. There is life after model-based systems engineering. There is a next level of innovation that lies beyond that. But through it all, what we're really trying to do is improve the quality of systems engineering so that we improve the overall engineering life cycle. If we will remember that this model-based stuff and everything that follows it is simply part of the journey and not the destination, then we will serve our organizations, we will serve our customers, and we will serve this profession. If we forget it, then we will fall in love with our tools, and we may make better tools and techniques all day long, but we fail to deliver on the purpose of systems engineering, which is to deliver against customer needs in an effective and efficient manner. So let's remember that real purpose. Let's continue to evolve. Let's continue to take this journey. Let's get beyond obsession, and let's get back to systems engineering. Thank you. So, questions. You were good about asking questions in the interim, so I didn't have to ask you any. Yes, sir. I want to ask about um, things like uh, uh, um, architectural styles and designs and patterns and so on. So, um, what do people do with the model based system engineering? Um, do they approach that? Uh, do they actually represent it? Uh, do they give it out free to others? Or how do you make it part of your uh, uh, design, uh, especially for the team, for the product line? And, um, right, right. So one of the things that we deal with in systems engineering in general, but then in architecture and in patterns and all those aspects is, unfortunately, um, I'm, I'm going to make a U.S.-based comment first, but I think it mirrors into many other cultures. We do not share well in this industry, and we would accelerate things if we told the real stories, warts and all, successes and all, and shared patterns and shared architectures. But for whatever reason, whether it's because of the aerospace and defense heritage or whether it's because of competitive position or something else we don't share. 
So what that means is each organization right now is largely doing their own learning. We're doing a little learning at a professional level. At a, at a professional level. I can't break that culture yet. What I can do is tell you that the first thing that you have to do inside your organization is create a safe space for a community to form where they can share. Because the experiences on this project and that project are going to be different. Reinforce the successes, avoid the failures. Hopefully, in COSI, perhaps working with academia can create a safe space where we will get more honest sharing of experiences across the profession. And when we do that, then we can get patterns. Where community level patterns are likely to emerge is going to be from academia because people talk to academia. They don't talk to one another. I wish I had a better answer for you than that, but in all my time, the only place that I've seen that violates what I just said is Australia. And they've got a very interesting culture there, and they were free to say this to me because I'm an American. They said, hey, look, we cannot afford to make mistakes on the level that you make mistakes. <laughs> and in large part, they're right. I think the U.S. military defense complex largely keeps itself running in order if it's ever needed. But we make mistakes on a huge level. And so therefore, we're set up in a very competitive, closed way. They treat government and contractor as partners. And so that means they talk in a different way. They don't talk hostile and competitive. They talk collaboration, which means in the community they talk in collaboration. I attend their annual systems engineering workshop, and there is more open sharing there among a community of a couple hundred than I've seen anywhere else. It's a cultural thing again. Good. Thanks. Yes, sir. Problem domain and the solution domain closer. Um, the question really is I'm speaking to the gentleman's question here about patterns. Mm -hmm. um, patterns still has a, uh, a sort of solution, solution field to it, rather than a problem field. Yes. Uh, is there anything around problem frames or problem uh, patterns? Yes, yes. So, you know, can it? bring problem and solution together? The answer is, is not only can it, but it must. And by the way, it must also bring programmatics into that picture as well. Okay, Because you do not have a complete picture of the program and the journey from problem to solution unless you understand the problem and understand it right. The biggest errors are made on day one. You map the solution to that, and then you have the programmatic layer as well. By the way, that brings the program manager in. So if we talk about patterns, they can exist on both sides of that. And in fact, if we would spend more time understanding the real problem, as opposed to, unfortunately, we generally leap to solutioneering, because that's the fun stuff, then we would do our organizations a great benefit. So every technique that we think about on the solution side, you're 100% spot on. Get it on the problem side, couple the two, because they are tightly coupled, but don't forget programmatics as well. Good question, good comment. Anybody else? Gerhard. Um, I think in one of the, the slides about the, the Rosetta study, <laughs> you mentioned uh, that the, the academia are now moving to and saying, well, you know, these people uh, are already there. We just need to connect, connect it. <laughs> why do you think? Uh, what, what is the hurdle that, that, that prevents, it seems to me that you know all this stuff is there, but there's no motivation for the people to start saying, well, how, how do they fit together? Right, right. Instead of everybody wants to say, well, look at own discipline. Yes, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. What I would tell you, and this is David's biased view of the world, think about how systems engineering grew up. It did not grow up as an academic pursuit. It grew up as a practical exercise of these things aren't working, and in the practical world, we're going to develop techniques to solve it. If you rewind the clock about 20 years, uh, I'm going to say there may have been 20 systems engineering master's programs in the world. 
And how many are there now? There are hundreds that are true systems engineering. So it is, as a professional discipline at the academic level, we're very young. And by the way, most people who are getting a master's or anything else are still going into practice, not going into PhD research. We've got very, very few. Now, we do have more now, and they are being funded, and so they can begin to do this research. But applications-oriented guys like me tend to just try to make it work. And we need the academics to back us up a little bit and put that underpinning in so that when we, quote-unquote, just make it work, we're doing so in an informed way. I think the next generation of systems engineers will have a little more informed basis of that because the profession has matured. It's not a discipline yet, but the profession has matured where there are more true academics looking at systems engineering. They don't consider it first class yet, but it's at least in the conversation. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, but I maybe more in South Africa. I mean, we, we definitely, from, from an academic point of view, we, we, we struggle with uh, If you go to university, the professors, they would say, look, this is, I'm either an electronic engineer or I'm a mechanical engineer. Yes. Uh, literature or whatever, but right. um, there is no such thing as looking <coughs> at them all together and trying to see how they fit together. Um, they, they seem to be, uh, in terms of the, the academics, that they want to, they want to focus on into specific disciplines. Yes. There's not a need to try and work together. No, you're exactly right. <coughs> if you look at Western education in particular, we have been taught to decompose, and we've decomposed by discipline too. <clears throat> we've become specialists in narrower and narrower fields. That is what has allowed technology to advance, so we should be very thankful for it, but it has broken the system's mindset. Now, what are we seeing? As we move beyond complicated into complex, we realize that simply decomposing problems into root disciplines does not work. There is this cross-cutting aspect and so I think that is driving, it's a small community, but it is driving growth. I've seen it in the U.S., I've seen it in Europe. I do not see it in Asia, by the way. I think the systems thinkers in Asia do not go into engineering. They go into philosophy or other fields right now. And so it's also cultural around the world, but at least we are seeing a growth in true Ph.D. research-oriented academics. It'll take time. Susha, you were going to say something? Here's how it was actually just a thought I was wondering about. I mean, it's the same thing about management, now we call it management science. Mm -hmm. um, they're using a lot of mathematics that's... It's the same thing that we would use, let's say, to calculate our reliability numbers or whatever the case may be. Yep. How do they manage to make the leap? Was this something I was thinking of? It's a good question. I've not thought of, of studying them, but it's worth, it's worth looking at that. It's a good question. Thanks for your patience and your attention. I've appreciated it. Thanks.